Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to the second episode of Que Pasa HSIs. Although HSI Week 2022 is technically over, we aren't even close to being done talking about what's happening in HSIs. I am honored to be your host of the show as both a daughter and former employee of HSIs in California. I am in no way the voice of HSIs, but I do acknowledge the platform that I have in creating new knowledge with and for HSIs. I take this responsibility seriously and commit to bringing you a nuanced understanding of HSIs. This podcast is just one of many avenues for learning more about how to better serve our students. In this episode of Que Pasa HSIs, I talked to Dr. Lisa Petrov, who serves as the project director of a Title V grant at Dominican University called Strengthening Advising, Teacher Education, and Our HSI Identity. We focus on an essential structure for serving this, which is HSI grant implementation and HSI grant directorship. Many HSIs start their journeys by applying for and launching a Title III or Title V HSI grant. Lisa offers a wealth of knowledge about project directorship and offers in insight into the challenges and successes of implementing serving this in practice. Dr. Petrov is also an associate professor of Spanish and transcultural studies at Dominican University, which informs her work, as you will learn about in this episode. Her undergraduate and graduate degrees are in Spanish from Oberlin College and the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her MA is in Latin American Studies from Tulane University. She has experienced developing heritage language, language curriculum, which is an important consideration for HSIs as they think about serving Spanish heritage speakers. Talking about the challenges and struggles of implementing a Title V grant is a priority for me as a formal Title V grant implementer at Cal State Fullerton, where I felt like there was very little guidance about how to become an HSI and very little scholarship about what it means to be an HSI. Yet here we are 18 years later, 18 years since I started that position, still trying to figure it out. Some of y'all are tuning in because you are you too are trying to figure out what serving this is on your campus and what it means to be an HSI. And more importantly, how to be an intentional HSI that centers Latinx, Latine students. Dr. Petrov offers us a wealth of information about the challenges and struggles, along with many of her successes in implementing Dominican's HSI grant. I first met Lisa when she invited me to work with Dominican University. I was excited to learn what Dominican while simultaneously trying to explore their enactment of an HSI identity. I spent 18 months with Lisa and Dominican University collecting data and making presentations, but I also shared space with students, faculty, staff, and administrators who were really trying to figure this HSI thing out. I made many friends and colleagues during this partnership, including Lisa, who is now stuck with me forever as a colleague and collaborator. We also wrote an article entitled Becoming a Racially Just Hispanic Serving Institution, Leveraging HSI Grants for Organizational Identity Change, which is available in the show notes. And with that, let's get to the show. 
All righty, I'm excited to get started today with our episode of Que Pasa HSIs. Lisa, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things Hispanic serving institutions. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, we'd like to talk about you and learn a little bit about you. So tell us first about your higher education journey from access to completion. Oh my goodness. So I was pretty lucky that I went to a magnet public school in the city of New York called Bronx High School of Science that, you know, people may have heard of because some other famous people have gone to, not me being famous, but, you know, Uh, and it was pretty much assumed that everybody was on track to go to college from that high school. Um, it was also like a real multicultural nerd land. It brought, drew, it drew students from the entire city. And, um, so I was really fortunate to have faculty, uh, or teachers at the high school that were all ethnicities, religions, races, etc., and went to had class similarly with a really diverse group of New Yorkers, all of whom, you know, cared about school, were good at school, and planned to go to college. So I ended up at Oberlin College because I kind of wanted the exact opposite of what I had experienced. Man, Bronx Science had a graduating class of a thousand students. I wanted to go to a small liberal arts school in an idyllic setting uh, where if they cut the grass and I could smell grass, I was like, oh, you know, because having grown up in the city, you know, my experience of nature was pretty limited, let's put it that way. So Oberlin, I studied Spanish, I, I studied abroad. Uh, one of my early motivations has always been uh, travel. I love to travel. And in thinking about what I wanted to do for a profession, I really considered that as an element. Um, long story short, uh, I didn't, I graduated, I worked in, you know, a bunch of different, relatively unrelated to my college training, meaning language and culture. Uh, and then my mother convinced me to try teaching. And so I got a job in the New York City Public Schools with some immigrant students. And I taught native language arts to Spanish speakers. Uh, at that time, the and new immigrants to the city were from Asia, mostly China and the Dominican Republics uh, specifically. And so that kind of got me interested in teaching as a profession. And then at the same time, uh, I did a translation gig for a friend of my sister's, went with Guatemala to him. He was starting a business, but he didn't speak any Spanish. So I translated Mayoreo, Minoreo, like stuff like that for him. And, and, and I was like, oh, Guatemala, this is fascinating. And, you know, just kind of got interested in that, which led me to a master's degree in Latin American studies at Tulane. And then during that process, I fell in love really with 
uh, colonial literature, the colonial period. I was fascinated by it, especially sort of, you know, the pre-colonial indigenous civilizations and cultures, languages that were present. And then, you know, sort of that monumentous moment of bringing together basically the whole world and establishing some of the structures that have plagued us to this day. So this, you know, in many ways. Um, but I realized that higher ed does not know what to do with interdisciplinary folks. So I said, I need to get a Spanish degree. And I looked into who were the leading scholars in colonial literature. And I zoomed in on this one woman, Margarita Zamora, who was uh, doing interesting work. And I thought, if I'm going to do a PhD to become a professor, then I'm going to do it with somebody that I, I want to study under this person, which is a very old fashioned thing. And I don't know where I got that idea, but for some reason, that was it. And because I could have done better, right? Because UW-Madison at the time did not have tuition remission. And so it cost me a lot of money to go there. Um, and luckily, I just recently had my student loans forgiven because forgiven? Dominican, Woo! I know, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. Because Dominican is a public service school. And from teaching at the high school level, I knew I wanted to teach, but I knew I didn't want to teach high schoolers. And, and interestingly enough, like, higher ed doesn't consider you an educator, they consider you a researcher. So I went into the profession for that relationship with students. And, um, and I, I, did, I did love, you know, the dissertating process, the research process, like, I, I like that. It's not like I don't like the research part, but I'm more motivated by working with the students. So I ended up with a PhD from UW-Madison in colonial lit wow. through a really not like not a traditional, like I took a long break between college and graduate school mm -hmm. to figure out what I wanted to do and why. Um, and wow. all along the way of the PhD, I was pretty clear eyed about all of the things that I don't like about higher ed, like that stuff was there from the beginning. And so consciously making decisions <laughs> at each step of the way, right? ABD, do I really want this degree? Do I really want to be in this industry, mm -hmm. right? In this sector of education. Uh, and until I could say yes, I, I couldn't get motivated to do the work. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you for that. I feel like I know you really well and I just learned so much more. And also a lot of things make sense. <laughs> your story <laughs> they now all kind of comes to together it all kind of comes together and when you describe your uh, ideal undergraduate uh, institution and your Oberlin experience um, so with that like the schools you went through and uh, you know attended and graduated from they're not HSIs although you work at one now so tell us about your your servingness journey or otherwise stated how do HSIs even come into your consciousness oh my goodness good question well I think when I first arrived at Dominican, and even before, like my uh, my hiring process, when I came to campus, I 
taught as a sample course, a, a heritage speaker course, which my only experience in that context had been high school. Um, but again, it was not nothing. It was something because I taught two years that high school population. And so I had, a, I had a sense of how it's different from the L2 class, right? Um, and how to go at language through culture and other means, not like grammar. So I got hired because I, I can teach. I am a good teacher. And, um, and then I realized that our heritage speaker classes, which were beyond the requirement, were filling up right? It had, it included community-based learning um, and was just a really successful course. We had one course at the time, high intermediate for heritage speakers. And it was, it was just a successful course. And we got a lot of students interested in studying Spanish from that course. And in the community-based portion of the course, we saw students really uh, respond to that experience, right? To going out into the community, working with the community, being part of the community themselves as just really empowering and really affirming. Um, and sometimes led to folks being hired by these NGOs that they had volunteered for. Um, so on the one hand, there were folks getting out there, college-aged Latinx folks getting out there, a lot of times working at Catholic NGOs because we're a Catholic school and that's our office of community engagement was very focused, you know, on helping other Catholic organizations uh, so, and a lot of times it was working with kids, working with after school programs, working with um, daycare for parents who were taking classes, whether it be English or financial literacy or whatever. Um, and so, you know, Dominican was out there representing to some extent in a Latinx context, right? These Spanish speakers, English speakers, you know, bilinguals, working with kids, uh, giving back to the community, getting something as well. So really positive at the same time as, I don't know about you, but um, my understanding of Hispanic culture is it's a very, they told two friends type of culture, right? If you buy a product that you like, you're going to tell your friends about it, right? If your kid goes to a dance school that is good, you're going to tell your cousins and your aunt, and that's how the marketing goes, right? So I knew from just the Spanish program that we were going to see more Latinx students coming into the school because we were having some success in getting them in, getting them through, and graduating them. So even before Dominican thought of itself in any way as HSI or potentially HSI, 
in the Spanish program, the faculty, myself, and and others in the program, uh, Dr. Ibarra, Dr. Howe, uh, especially, we were already like, mm, you know, this is this is gonna change. Things are gonna, right? Things are gonna change. And so we started adding more classes for heritage speakers at different levels because we were also dealing with folks coming in at a lower level of language proficiency, but way higher than the L2. It's like, I can't put, you know, somebody who understands every word I say as the teacher in the room in the class with somebody who understands like every 20th word, maybe, you know, like, yeah, they took Spanish in high school, but they not, not, not much of it stuck, right? With somebody who they may not be able to produce a lot of language, but they understand a lot of language. Like that needs to be its own class, right? To work with what they have and, and get them more of what, you know, can benefit them. So HSI was on our radar before it became official. And then when it became official, I was like, okay, uh, we could, we saw that coming. Um, but honestly, all the details of what it is, what it means, uh, I didn't really think hard about until there was a project to implement, right? And then I did a lot of reading, I read all of the regulations and just trying to get a, a feel for, you know, what is the spirit behind this legislation that funds this concept slash institutional reality. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the reality is like we observe if you're observant, not everybody's that observant, right? Like observe the changing demographics um, long before the designation even comes about or even if the institution gets it right because it's not required. You don't have to pursue the designation. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. You said once there was a project to implement. So you are the inaugural right title five, the first title five um, project director, and you're coming up on the end of your of your term, your five-year term. So tell us about it. Who got the project, you know, who uh, got the, the grant and how did you become the director? Uh, well, I think it was our second attempt. The first attempt was not successful. The second attempt was successful. The uh, original project director was supposed to be Dr. Leticia Villarreal Sosa, who for whatever reason declined one, once the project was um, was funded, and I was told by folks that then you know a few people sat in a room and had a conversation, and it seemed that uh, my name kept coming up when. Well, they were really. I think they were really thinking about who on campus consistently uh, stands up for the students. Um. And then knows something about HSI related issues, right? Um, but I'm not sure what the real decision making process was. Uh, I thought to myself when I was offered, yeah, let's see what this is about. Mostly because I knew that we needed to do stuff on campus to make things better for the students. And, 
you know, why not me? Because I'm not too, I, I, I'm not too fearful. I have some privilege as faculty, tenured faculty. I didn't have the CV and the personal experience that Dr. Villarreal Sosa had and has, but she's a colleague of mine. Uh, she's definitely somebody that I go to and look to for some guidance when there's uh, decisions that need to be made. And it's hard to tell exactly which there may be equal in some ways and not in others. Uh, and she's one of a few people who I go to, but you know, it was kind of a mystery because again, it was the first project. So we didn't know. And we and thinking about it in, in retrospect, we did not have the infrastructure Right. So the beginning of the implementation is like, okay, well, we need this and we need this. Oh, we don't have that. Well, we need to have that. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, didn't know the, the full story. One day I'll talk to uh, Dr. Villarreal Sosa. Um, I'll get her on, a, on an episode because I do very much enjoy her too and I'd love to hear her perspective. Um, and mm -hmm. she's doing great work on campus too around serving us. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit more then because uh, I think it's interesting that you're, you know, you're like, I became the director. Um, I, I met you right as a director and in and, and working directly with you. Um, I I would say you've done a great job and you have a lot of great qualities um, that have made you successful, right? And part of it is the trust um, on campus, right? People trust you, people name you as someone they, they trust and they're willing to follow. And also you're willing to ask questions and not be quiet and sit down and sit in the corner, um, which I think is, you know, things I would just uh, quick say an assessment of what has made you successful as a, as a director. Um, but what do you think? What, are, what have been the key elements to your successful um, grant implementation for those listening who are trying to figure out how do we do this? We just got this new grant and we're trying to figure it out. What, what are some of the tips you would offer? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I spent the first few months just reading and rereading the project description since I was not part of the process of writing it up. And then also reading the regulations and knowing what can and can't be done with the federal funds, right? Having a pretty clear idea of what's not allowed, what is allowed. And then the project, because it's the scope and the goals of the project that you have to keep in mind for everything, right? It's just having a really clear idea, not necessarily of all the specifics in the narrative, but definitely you need a good logic model, right? You need a good idea of what your inputs are. You need a good idea of what the framework is that has determined what the inputs are. And then um, zero in on what you can get done. I think I always wanted to, you know, hit the ground running uh, in the sense that start planning, start doing, start paying for things fast so you can gather up some momentum because I think the getting going can be difficult just because you literally have to create something from what's generally speaking nothing, <laughs> right? So that takes a little bit of finessing uh, because it's happening within institutional structures that are not designed for that to happen 
unfortunately that like that's uh one of the key issues higher ed needs to really deal with is its own like everybody's oh we pivoted so well during COVID-19 we went from uh in person to online well but if you were teaching the same exact way online that you do in person and then you didn't really do much that's just a mess you know a medium change uh people were still lecturing and the students are still sitting there with their cameras off you know not paying attention so uh, really making changes, that's tricky. But the logic model is a foundational piece. Like that, if the project has a good logic model and you say, okay, I'm going to start with what are the inputs for the logic model, which in my case, which a lot of student workers, bilingual, bicultural student workers, right, which we had lots of, um, some digital supports, things like that, right? Then you can get started and get momentum and all it takes is one or two successes, right? And then after that, everybody pretty much wants to be a part of it because once you're having some success, then, you know, who doesn't wanna jump on it, right? Um, another thing I would say that is helpful, especially at the beginning, is to just be a little bit more bold than you're comfortable with and push people a little bit farther out of their comfort zone than they're comfortable with. Just because, again, that first strike is a key, right? It should be bold. It should be uh, have a vision, be backed up by the project, the logic model, et cetera, like all the data that says why you need to do this should be there. Um, but because once you get started and you've done and you start doing things, then the, the, the institution, the system will start to figure out ways to like contain you and contain the, the change that these dollars are going to make. Why? Because higher ed is afraid of change. It's adverse to change. It's Oh, I mean, as an industry, as a sector, it is, I mean, everybody knows, like, it just takes forever to do even the simplest things, right? Uh, committees are the way for things to just slow down to an even more snail's pace, right? So the more you can do quickly, and the more bold it can be, the greater your momentum will be, and the more likely it is that you will be able to maintain some movement, despite the fact that uh, a lot of things will start to come in and 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 contain what you can do, right? Um, right. I've already seen that just from my project to the other projects, mm. right? How some of the other projects haven't been spending their annual budget uh, because, you know, things are not approved for spending. And it's like, we, I, 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 my attitude always was, so these are pilots. We're testing things, mm. right? We're testing what it can work at our institution because, okay, you as a researcher know that the research is built on a host of small 
samples of 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 experiments that are contextualized, mm-hmm. right? What may work at one school might not work at another because things are different, right? So you can take it as this worked at this school. Let's see if it'll work here. And you add your own spin to it that will work at your school, uh, you know, for more success. Then, you know, so you still have to pilot stuff. You don't Mm -hmm. know if anything is going to truly work or if it's sustainable. Like some of the things that we've done, totally sustainable, already being institutionalized. Like I feel good about this project because a lot of the work that we did will continue and Dominica will pick up the tab. But there are some things that we've done that are not yet institutionalized and may not be institutionalized just because, you know, the funds are very limited. The institutional funds are limited, very, very tight. And the capacity of the institution is still not up to speed with what we need, with what the students need, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I like that you um, align with, I talked to Victor Davila also about a project implementation and he said the same thing. He said, spend the money. Um, And you kind of said the same thing, right? And that sounds easy. It's like, oh, you know, who doesn't want to spend money? But it's hard because you have to follow the logic model. You got to make sure you're following the guidelines um, and, and do it fast, right? You said quickly because you get the money and you need to have results in less than a year, right? Like, cause usually by the time the funds actually hit, you're already halfway through the first year. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that you said that again to sort of reinforce like that, that is an important concept to just think we gotta, we gotta just get, get rolling and try things. Right. Yep. And, and some things aren't going to work and some things are, and we're, we're going to keep going anyways. Um, yep. But you also said celebrate the successes. I love that. That's something else that, you know, people listening to think about is like, how are you sharing your successes? Like some uh, campuses, you can't even find anything about their HSI grants. A lot, actually. Mm. You could search their whole, you know, websites. You you can't find anything. So like sharing your successes, even with campus, I think is a a good thing um, too, right? That I hadn't really thought about. It's like, what an important concept um, that you got to immediately start telling people, hey, we're doing this thing and we're actually, we're succeeding. We're doing well. At Dominican, we have uh, Caritas Veritas Day, which is basically an on-campus symposium uh but every school generally speaking has some venue for sharing what's going on on campus with you know the major stakeholders so yeah for sure you gotta tell your own story otherwise and nobody knows and nobody knows that it was federal dollars that paid for xyz pilot that people think is so great you know Um, absolutely yeah. So, yeah. so sharing your story, but also you said institutionalizing. Um, yep. Any thoughts on that? Like as far as a successful outcome of a grant is institutionalizing? How do you do that? How does that happen? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's hard because by definition, an HSI is generally speaking a resource limited institution. So You know, the bottom line is always on everybody's mind. Um, I think the institutionalization part comes with having 
the right VPs arguing for the need for whatever the project is paying for, you know, to the VPs or the whomever is in charge of finance. I remember the first meeting I had with the business office, um, I had to basically say, because the question was, well, what if we don't want to institutionalize any of this? And I'm like, well, then expect to not get funded again, because if you're just going to take the $3 million, spend it, and then not actually maintain anything that was paid for to improve student measurements, well, then you're not going to get funded again or very often or for very long, right? And that kind of, it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> so, and I think as decisions get made about what to fund, what to pilot, you know, those are VP level decisions. Those folks need to be uh, wanting to try things that they think they will want to sustain. You know, if the data shows this wasn't very effective or it wasn't worth the costs, okay, then you don't do it. Um, but in most cases, you know, the, these projects are, are conceptualized based on research that shows what works, right? So it's a question of bringing the resources to the institution that otherwise can't afford to do some of these things, um, but can plan to afford them if there's a timeline. That's, I mean, five years is a, enough time to, to, to make that happen, but you really need to think about institutionalization from the start of the project in the sense that, um, you know, you don't want to be creating things that are not going to be value added, right? So it, it's tricky because, and, and for a project director, like, so for a person like me, I'm not a VP, I'm faculty, even with tenure, but whatever, just a regular old faculty member. Um, and having to bring up to VPs and having to speak on behalf of, say, the taxpayer of like, you know, this is this is also ethical, right? How are how are we going to spend these taxpayer dollars in ways that bring us results and that help us, as the grant says, strengthen the institution, right? I mean, the the, the DHSI grant, the developing HSIs is just that; it's to strengthen the institution, right? Keeping the students retaining them, graduating them, getting them to be able to graduate in four, you know, in, in around four years, right? Um, you can't do the same things you've always done and improve your, your measurements, right? So what can we do that will get to that? And some of it works great. Others, it's not as clear. Like, for example, COVID-19 came in the middle of this project and really threw a wrench into some of what we plan to do, right? We had plans to work with the with a community college on transfer rates for teacher ed students. A lot of the work that was in our teacher ed development, uh, which was the, the, what do they call it? Like the competitive priority that year, 
um, some of that work we could just couldn't do because everyone is was in emergency mode. Right? Like, how can you increase collaboration during a time when everybody's just freaking out about how do we teach and how do we get people from you know how do we keep people from catching this virus and being sick? So, you know, there are things you can't foresee. Uh, you know, and what can you do instead? Yeah, absolutely. That'll COVID-19 will definitely make it harder to spend money, it seems, because <laughs> you're like, ah, we're gonna do all these things and now we we don't. Yep. Um, I, I as you know, I was a I implemented a Title V grant and as I'm talking to you and listening to you, I'm like, gosh, I wish I knew all these things. I'm hoping people are listening and taking notes because um, I mean, talking, thinking about institutionalizing from day one. I was way too young and way too inexperienced to um, even think about that. Um, but thinking from day one, how are you going to institutionalize? And even I think having um, knowing who to go to on campus, right? That's important. I was brand new to campus. They brought me in. Um, and I think there's some value to hiring somebody internal, right? Or, or not hiring because they're already internal, bringing them into the project director role who already has connections on campus, who already has relationships on campus and knows Oh, I know. I know who to go to in the business office. I know them. Actually, I'm gonna pick up the phone and call them. Yeah, <laughs> not totally. like, yeah, not like, oh, hey, I'm new on campus. Can we schedule a meeting just so I can get to know you? <laughs> right. Versus, oh, I know. I know so and so over there. I'm gonna call them right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I do. I mean, there are, uh, it's hard because sometimes fresh eyes are is good. Right. You really need that. You need an outside perspective. But agreed, uh, who to go to, who's really the power broker in this or that context, you know, it does help to have experience on campus and to have relationships that you can leverage right away uh, as opposed to building those. That, But that's not to say that the project shouldn't hire people from outside, no, but maybe not for the director, right? Or the activities directly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. exactly. And, I, and unfortunately, I'm also seeing that there is a benefit to having folks be faculty mm. uh, that does give you some gravitas, so to speak, mm. or, uh, you know, some amount of respect that you may not and often, unfortunately, don't get as staff, which is you know, another thing I don't love about higher ed, but right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, those are facts, right? Yeah. That yeah. Faculty tend to listen to other faculty more, but even then, you know, it's, I, well, my, my attitude with the faculty development, because, you know, that's a whole can of worms, but I decided that since our faculty development was mostly focused on building culturally responsive practitioners, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, getting people to even know what those words mean, number one, to see themselves as that, a practitioner, uh, understand, you know, how culture is everywhere all the time and is in their teaching, whether they think it's there or not, and, and how to build relationship with students so that they have a better understanding of who the students are, what their cultural understandings and assets and, and expectations are. But yeah. I thought I never, I always thought I'll go, I'll fund whoever wants to do the work. Right. Mm -hmm. People are like, Oh, but it's always the same. 
I don't care. Those people get better and those people become excellent. And then other people want to be more like them. So sometimes you don't necessarily have to get the folks who need it the most to do it. You get Mm. the folks who want to do it, to do it and do it well, and then model how it's done Mm. for, for others and take on leadership roles. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's good, there are good folks out there doing training, um, that will train people how to do leadership on campus. Right. So you don't even have to provide necessarily that learning yourself. Right. Because I hear a lot of times people, oh, it's always the same people. Well, that's okay. They're getting better. They're still Mm -hmm. learning how to do it because it's a never ending. You're never going to be uh, you know, you don't arrive, let's put it that way, right? You still Absolutely. have to keep up with the students because they keep coming and they're, they stay the same age, but culture changes and, and where they come from may change. You know, even as a HSI, you know, more of our students are second generation, not first generation mm-hmm. or third generation. It also depends on where you're located what you know what the student population is but no matter what you know you need to listen to the radio and know what songs are popular <laughs> and, and <laughs> if you're not listening TV. to bad bunny you you need to <laughs> i mean seriously <laughs> seriously if you don't you know the know. song <laughs> that all the students know then you're out of touch <laughs> at least know who bad bunny is <laughs> I, <don't know> <laughs> um, I think you you said something really important um, that like everybody wants everybody to show up and they want the people who need it the most to show up. I get that question all the time. Well, how do we get the people who never come? And I'm like the same thing, like, but y'all are here and y'all are making the institution better. Um, and LeBron James still goes to practice and he's one of the greatest. Right. So like, yep we all need to keep practicing. We all need to get better. And we, and we do and, 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 and helps move the institution. So, so I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I agree. Like some people ain't going to show up and you know what, they're going to do more damage anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yes, and pro- possibly <laughs> derail the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause sometimes forcing people to be places they don't want to be, it's never a good idea. Mm-hmm. And faculty even more because then they'll, then they're jerks. Um, Mm -hmm. but also it's just a way of that, you know, like not being able to celebrate the successes, right. Mm -hmm. Is to focus on who didn't show up. Okay. Well, whatever. But the people who do show up, you know, celebrate them, spotlight them Mm -hmm. and the folks who don't do it will be jealous. (laughs) Yep. So I, and I think that's important part of this work, right? It's like, everybody's not going to get on board, but it's an institutional shift. So the more yep. we can get on board, the better, but some folks are going to, going to help move it along faster than others. And that's Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. To some extent, you need a critical mass and mm-hmm. you have project dollars to build that critical mass, mm-hmm. right? But taking the ones who do volunteer, just keep, you know, keep building on it. You know, mm-hmm. if, if first you're learning about culturally responsive or you start with inclusive, the you know, anti-racist, all these other things. And then, you know, throw in uh, uh, open resource materials training so that, mm. they can, you know, get some free textbooks for students because. Right. Because the other HSI thing, you know, is that we're we're 
we're delivering an education to students who are coming from resource limited households. Mm -hmm. Right. And so how do we stop thinking like I, I know at my school we have art professors, you know, who are great at their job, but it costs two hundred dollars to buy the intro to drawing materials because you need to have this charcoal and this pencil and this paper and these erasers and this and it's like come on. <laughs> for the low income student $200 on art supplies they could eat for a couple weeks with that and, and me too right so yeah no, it's, it's important yeah, yeah exactly so there's there's other things yeah. so what's the flip side of, of success is, is challenges what kind of challenges um, have you faced and how have you dealt with those <laughs> <laughs> well some of the challenges that have been the most difficult is just, you know, like, again, going back to a real fear of change. And in the case of some folks, an unwillingness to change. So moving from not having an HSI identity to having an HSI identity is a really big shift in the sense that, you know, in our racialized society, Hispanic, Latinx, Spanish speaking, all of that is racialized. Um, despite the fact that the people to whom it refers encompass all races and ethnicities, it's still sort of stereotyped as brown, overwhelmingly, and then, you know, Spanish speaking, right? Uh, and that's just a really difficult shift for an institution that is not those things, right? Dominican has a long history of being, you know, accessible to immigrants, accessible to first gen, but overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly Catholic, and even if not middle class, aspiring to middle class though, right? Uh, and so you know, that's just really, really hard. And it's not even just hard for the institution, meaning the president, the VPs, but the faculty, right? It's difficult for some faculty to conceptualize that the school that they teach at serves students that are not the typical college white middle-class kid that people think they're gonna teach based on their PhD um, training, right? Because there are very few, and especially, you know, people who are not graduating now, right? Almost all faculty graduated from predominantly white institutions that were not questioning anything you know, maybe there was some controversial scholarship happening in this department or that department, but for the most part, everything is a system is being upheld. So, you know, it's like they have to rethink who they are, right? And it's sad for me to hear, and it's sad for some other folks to hear uh, disparaging comments that people will make about you know, the, 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 inst I mean, the hierarchy of higher ed, right? There's R1s, 
Then there's and the, there's the IVR ones. Then there's the non-IVR ones. And there's the big ten and the this and the that. And then you know, then there's the lowly community college, right? And you know, it's just sad for people to buy into that and and feel like if we're not teaching X Y Z type of student, then we're not this or that type of institution, right? And it's unfortunately a prestige industry. And so people feel like that's important, right? I mean, Absolutely. yeah, I, I never bought into that because to me, I have too much worker consciousness before I came into higher edu- education. Like I was already somewhat of a Marxist before I was ever in higher ed so Mm -hmm. I could always be like oh yuck I hate I hate all of that personally so I'm kind of inoculated but it hurts it hurts to to hear people say well we don't want to be xyz institution and it'll either be like a community college or uh you know a public you know this private catholic you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of presuming and and performing class that comes with that, right? Right. Where even if you are broke, you still might have champagne toasts so that you know you can perform class. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. That's interesting. But yeah, that's higher. Higher does what it does. Right. And we see that happening within HSIs as well. Yes. Um, like, you know, everybody wants to be the best or the super yeah. or whatever. And it's like, you, why don't you be the best at serving low income Latino students, Spanish speaking, immigrant, first gen, right? All these things. When is that going to be celebrated? Right. When is that what we're celebrating that 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 were, were those things? Right. Versus. Well, Dominican will come out with its you know, we are number one in social mobility, blah, blah, Mm. blah. And social mobility is just, you know, double speak for we graduate poor students, Mm -hmm. you know, but, and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what, if students are coming to college to be able to get a better paying job with more benefits than say their parents have, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Or if they're coming to college, you know, to, to get a good job by their own definition, you know, more power to them. There's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I I don't think we should all just non-reflexively be reproducing the capitalist, neoliberal, et cetera, talking points of work hard and yeah, you too will have a middle-class life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at this stage in the United States, it's a lot of the youth are seeing that already to be somewhat hollow mm-hmm. and they're looking for social justice in mm-hmm. the sense of real change, right? Mm-hmm. They want to see equity. They want to see justice, right? And what we're serving up is mostly equality and uh, mm-hmm. charity. Mm, absolutely. And that's sort of intertwined with this Catholic institution and our Catholic ideology 
um, which I, is one of the things I have found really interesting in working with y'all, right? Is like, it's wrapped up in this like uh, long-term identity, right? About like what we're about and, and who we, what we care about, right? Ultimately yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah. um, any thoughts on that? Like how, what does servingness look like distinctly at a, at a Catholic institution and a small private liberal arts? I mean, y'all have very distinct identity. Um, and in doing this work, even when you refer, I would say to the literature, even my own research, we don't necessarily talk about those very distinct identities. I know I, I don't typically until working with y'all. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And it's like, how does it become really unique to do this kind of work at, at, a, at a very distinct type of institution? I mean, some of it is separate from, say, federal grant funded things. Like, there have been a couple of initiatives that I have to say no to because they're a little too closely tied with the church and its uh, motives. So you just have to be careful, know, you know what you can and can't support with federal dollars. But aside from that, at a Catholic HSI, because the Catholic church in general and in the United States is becoming more Spanish speaking, right? There's a real motivation to maintain the Catholic identity, to uh, try to develop it in the students, to, to think about um, their time at Dominican, not only about their own self-development intellectually, or for a career, but also spiritually. And I don't know how to speak to too much of that because I try to not think about too much of that. But I think it's good that we can uh, contribute towards a more culturally responsive church in the long run, especially if we're located in Chicago. So you know, there are a lot of Spanish-speaking churches, not just Catholic, but other uh, Christian religions, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but there come limitations with that as well. I think, again, uh, I don't know, like, how many churches are really out there advocating for equity Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, they're institutions as well. And to some extent they're self-preserving and Mm. they're also in the business of staying alive. Right. So mm, it, it definitely does bring a different element to it. Like the thing that I'm grateful for is I can say the word social justice and nobody really is like, Oh no, not social justice. Right. It's part, <laughs> it's part of the language. It's part of the lingo. I still, though, do have to educate people as to the difference between equality and equity. Mm. Right. Because I've, that's, the, that's, that's the one place where I find that there is a resistance to truly understanding equity because people have been so socialized to think about equality. Right. Mm. So giving to those that need what they need is where we need to go, right? Mm -hmm. The students who don't have needs for this, that, or the other thing, excellent, then don't provide that to them. But the ones who do need it, they need it. And the same goes for faculty and staff. 
faculty mm. of color, staff of color, uh, or religious minorities at a Catholic school, you know, sometimes they need more attention in some areas because they are not part of the dominant uh, identity of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the institution. So, you know, the Catholic part is a, is a, has, is a double-edged sword. Like sometimes it cuts for good and sometimes mm, mm-hmm. not Absolutely. Quite. Yeah. Some of the <coughs> mission aligns well, right. That's something I learned in working with y'all is it, it, it there's, there's some alignment, all right. In a, yes. in a historic um, Catholic education mission that aligns with yes. very much with the ways I, I, you know, have conceptualized HSIs. Um, yes. So, so yeah. I and, but I, some mm-hmm. of the tricky part is like the Catholic church was obviously uh, part of the colonial process mm-hmm. yeah and so you know it's hard to extract some of that assimilationist attitudes yes. that often come you know from the the church right or the like savior right that's what I struggle yeah. with it's like are you doing it because you're like trying to be a savior right like we're trying to get our community well you know points or what yeah you know and liberation theology interestingly enough was a dominican it was a dominican Mm. priest right Mm. but not everybody every dominican embraces liberation theology Mm. uh, in the same way and and what you know liberate liberatory outcomes for students and 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 a li- and liberatory education, those are different things too. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's complicated. Yes. Yeah, I think that it it for me in working with y'all and, and thinking through these these con- this really you know unique way in which you're implementing servingness at a Catholic institution is is the critical lens, right? Like I know you as a, as a crit- you have that critical lens, right? You're able to see like is this actually social justice for the good of, of, of our students? Is it equity or is it equality? Is it assimilation or is it actually justice, right? there, And that takes just a fine line of criticality, um, yeah. which which I think it has to happen in doing servingness. You gotta have that yeah. critical lens. Yeah, and try to sneak stuff in when you can. Like for example, <laughs> um, the pilot in our new critical reading, writing, speaking, right? So English, and communication came together and decided that our old requirement wasn't, you know, what our students really needed. So we came, they came up with this new thing, critical reading, writing, speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, once it's not called English 101 anymore, then you can bring in a dual language course. Mm. And that's radical. Like we have a critical reading, writing, bilingual pilot that we tested last year. We're going to do again next year that students can be affirmed in their two languages if they Mm. want, right? Right. There are 20 sections in English and one section that's bilingual, but it offers choice to those students, right? Um, To be able to develop their reading, their writing, and their speaking skills, both in English and in Spanish. Or at least know that the faculty when you know understands both languages so can support their language growth fully mm-hmm. right? um that was an act that was a by chance right mm. that these that the communications faculty are argued and advocated for a speaking requirement that then liberated us from english right 
I could never do that as a project. But as soon as I saw the opportunity, I was like, oh, we need to have a bilingual section. I can Mm. pay for that. Right. 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 Where Mm -hmm. they might not spend that money until it's successful. Mm. Right. Once the classes fill and the students uh, get something out of it and have good evaluations of the course, you know, then then it can be then it can be institutionalized. So sometimes, I mean, again, successful project implementation is keeping your ear to the ground and knowing what else is going on that you can, you know, take part in or support in some way or uh, piggyback. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, what are, uh, you know, uh, final thoughts on like uh, advice, right? That's an important piece of advice is staying in tune to what's going on, ear on the ground and catching those opportunities, right? You just described like there was an opportunity. I said, hey, I'll jump on it. I can support this. Um, Any other advice for practitioners listening um, as they're as they're doing this work? Well, I mean, kind of like I kind of hinted at it earlier, uh, but you need either an advisory board, official or unofficial, or some kind of HSI task force, official or unofficial, to help give you more information than you have just as one person, right? Um, And to also go to when you're frustrated because things are moving too slow or they're not moving or there are barriers or people to go to when you need help getting the word out about something Um, that can be, especially if you're coming in, you know, it's an institution that like in our case, we were just starting on this HSI voyage uh, journey and we didn't really have that. So that had to be built a little bit, uh, you know, at some institutions, maybe there have already been a couple of projects and there already is some of that infrastructure, but it helps to, you know, to be able to have folks that you can tell the truth to, you can say, this is a problem in this office because of this, or, you know, not to throw people under a bus, but, you know, sometimes you just need help with a particular office or person or, or, or something, right? And maybe you're not, it's somebody else that can get it through, right? In the end, it should always be about what can we get done? You have five years. Five years go by so fast. I can't believe it's been five years. It went by so fast, you know? And so- Absolutely. Yeah, you need some input, uh, a a sounding board. Sounding board, Mm mm-hmm. Don't go (coughs) out of that. Mm-hmm. Don't go out of that uh, on your own. No, and you need you need and you need your own like cheerleaders. They're like, "Hey, mm-hmm. you did it! We did it!" You know? <laughs> or crying on each other's shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> you need a little bit of both. <laughs> yes. So yes. to go along with that a little bit, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of external influences, like what helps us do this work or hinders us. Um, what types of organizations and associations outside of the organ outside of Dominican have you um, been able to turn to for guidance and support in the last five years on this journey? Awesome, yeah. And these are uh, uh, all of the usual suspects: Haku, Asi, Excelencia. 
you know, the folks who are really dedicated and bringing our attention to everything. Like Haku is really good for keeping you in touch with what's going on in DC and what's going on sort of in even local and state level governments. Um, and then ASI is awesome for practitioner level uh, attention to the doing of the work and a uh, lot of cool folks. So, you know, bring some joy to the work and um, Excellencia, uh, they just have the data, right? So it's helpful to be able to contextualize your own institutional data to other uh, data available. And then, you know, they also are policy driven like Haku. So it's helpful to have them as a voice to use with folks on your own at your own institution to say, if you want, you know, you want to be excellent, then this is what we got to do, right? You want the seal, this is what we got to do, right? This is bringing some reality check into, because the institution is always going to think it's doing fabulous and the best that it can. And will always, you know, the glass is always going to be half full. And to some extent, your job as in this role is to say, no, we have to be doing better. And this is why we need to improve practices here, policies there, whatever it might be, right? So those outside forces. Um, I'm spacing out on their name right now, but who are the folks in New Mexico? Escala. Escala. That they have been really helpful. Escala has been really helpful in training faculty, giving them, you know, more learning, right? Mm-hmm. And some experience with looking at data from their class, you know, working up close and personal with student data. Um, even the scientists, you know, who are used to working with data, they're not necessarily used to looking at classroom data. Uh, and then some of us who come from disciplines that have like, you know, the data to us, is like, you know, Nosferatu, uh, we don't know necessarily how to look at that. So we need more instruction, right? So Escala has been really helpful as mm. well. Um, yeah. So you've you've tapped into all the HSI yeah. resources, <laughs> pretty much, yeah, which I mean, you need to do. Yes, and put them on everybody's ra- radar. Mm-hmm. I just recently signed up for AAHHHE as well. Ahi, Ahi, yep. American Association, mm-hmm. Ahi, American Association of Hispanics in Higher Ed. Yes, because unfortunately, we are not doing our best at attracting high-level Latinx folks to open positions. Mm, mm. So we just hired a provost, and sadly, we did not have one Latinx person in our finalist pool. Mm. And I was like, why is that? Right, so we need to be posting our positions in the sites that other folks are looking to to find jobs so that we can... uh, 
diversify our candidate pools, as they say, you know. Yeah. And I mean, y'all are in Chicago. There's like, I, I mean, know. University of Illinois, Chicago, y'all could have just go there, I'm sure, right? Like, I mean, you have like, it's not like you're like in the middle of nowhere, USA, um, but still, right? Like people don't necessarily know y'all, right? It's that that storytelling of that, that they might not even know, you know, that you have positions or that y'all are kind of cool and doing some cool stuff um, at Dominican. So with that, what about um, other like city or state? state or local or even, oh. um, you know, very local, your community that you're situated in uh, forces that have either helped you with serving us or are preventing you. Like there's yeah. th- that reality too. People don't talk about that as much as that you might live in a city that or, or be situated in a city that's not helping you is, is harmful to serving right. us. So any thoughts on that? I mean, you know, what city is really doing it right? I mean, Chicago, Oh, you know, it's a it, it, it's built on a foundation of segregation, which is never good for this kind of work. But um, there is a local Illinois Latino Council on Higher Education that has been helpful in terms of organizing folks at the state level to network, get to know each other, come together once a year. Of course, COVID came in and kind of messed up a bunch of things, but they're, they're pretty active. I, I try to keep my ear to the ground on like the pipeline stuff through LULAC, which I became a member, even though I'm not Latino, I was like, whatever, I don't really care. I'm just going to give them my $40 so I can be on the distribution list and go to a meeting every once in a while. But I get it. I get things in my inbox that are opportunities for, for students, for for the younger siblings of our students, even sometimes, um, knowing that, you know, this is a pipeline. Higher ed, you cannot wait until they're 18, 19 to start talking about going to college, right? This needs to be in middle school uh, at, the, at, the, at the latest, even. Um, how Chicago, I mean, the thing is that there are, the, the, the beauty and the privilege of being in a major metropolitan area that has a significant population of African-Americans, Latinx, Spanish speakers, miscellaneous white folks from all over is, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of resources out there uh, in the community uh, for, for students as well as to reach students, right? So uh, if Dominican can do anything to develop its HSI identity going forward, it would be to just get out there more in the community and and be more involved in in some of the spaces. Like, you know, there's a Hispanic uh, Chamber of Commerce. Do we go, does somebody go to their annual gala and, you know, shake hands and get business cards? You know, I don't know. I don't know if anybody does that. I know I'm not doing that. Um, But, you know, if we have career grants, career-related grants, and somebody needs to be doing that. So, you know, to some extent, I think our our next phase is developing a more centralized, strategic oriented office of HSI initiatives to help guide folks. Um, I just worry a little bit about what kind of authority that office might have to kind of really push folks in 
specific directions and not just be like uh, suggesting. Absolutely. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. I've learned a lot and I already knew a lot about you and your work and I still learned a lot. Um, but the last question for everybody is always the same and it could be a long statement or it could be a quick response. It could be in English or Spanish. But the final question is, ¿Qué pasa, HSIs? Pues lo que pasa es que esto es todo un trabajo Una guerra, una batalla, lo que quieras. It's just work. And uh, keep your, I mean, que pasa HSI is we got to keep our eyes on the prize, which is getting the students to and through the university experience and onto whatever their hearts desire because they deserve it. And, and, you know, that's what else do we have to do but to do that. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you for that response. And thank you for being a guest here on Que Pasa HSIs. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Always good to see you.